Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, DC area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S. with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who was nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript Perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to provide, motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. So welcome to a special episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. We are going to talk today about looking back at 2022, the 20 episodes that we had last year. This is January, mid-January 2023, and I am going to review these episodes with one of my PostScript colleagues, Ramiz Munawar. Ramiz, welcome. Thank you. appreciate you having me. So we decided to do this using kind of themes from last year's podcast that I kind of assembled with with the help of Ramiz. We kind of kind of thought through who we had as guests and what were germane topics. And I thought what we would do is just kind of go through each each theme of the five that I thought we'd go through, and then re- refer back to the episodes that had referenced to those themes and what the guests said at that time. And so reviewing the 2022 
Icons episodes, we interviewed eight mixed-use developers and investors, two affordable housing developers, two government officials, three people in design and construction, and three people who advise owners either in law, brokerage, or consulting, and two who are invest in either debt or equity. So here are the major threads that I took away from the conversation. So number one is the clear trend away from traditional office and retail toward residential mixed-use development. Now, this trend has been going on for more than 10 years, maybe longer than that, primarily because of office demand just overall declining and then the, the shift in the internet to re- from retail Amazon and other retailers, you know, growth of online retail, which has affected, you know, retail from regional malls down to small strip centers and even freestanding retail is affected by it. But, and then on the office side, of course, what's happened socially and the impact, and then of course, the pandemic's impact was dramatic over the last three years. So the first episode that, that focused on this a little bit was with Don Wood of Federal Realty. And Don talked a little bit about the failings of of failured malls. And he cited a speech that he he made in 2012 about failed malls. And he said, in many cases, there aren't economic solutions other than let's milk this dog until it's gone, in essence, as the highest and best use is best just to leave it alone. So he also said the best product in America, which he likes to say he builds at Fed Federal, and they do a pretty good job, gets repurposed and redeveloped. The worst product just sits. Quality real estate is critically important. So for him, no commodities, and it's got to be special for retail development and mixed use as well. So what do you think about that, Ramiz, what, what Don said? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think I think not being commodity is going to determine the winners and losers. And that's not just true of retail, but also office, right? There's just so much commodity product in the market and only so much of that can be repurposed to residential just because it doesn't fit the financial profile or the physical profile. But I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, I think one of the things I think about when I look at distressed office is office buildings and even retail, we all think of them as having certain ingredients for success, right? Whether that's the physical structure, whether that's location, you know, amenities, access to metro, view corridors, things like that, right? The list goes on and on. And I think if we're investing in distressed assets right now, it's got to have more of the ingredients than before. Just because the market is so different and it's so much tougher, if you're going to invest in a distressed asset and take on all that risk, You want to put yourself in a position where you have more of those ingredients and give yourself a better opportunity to achieve success. So that's where the winners and losers are really going to come from. And I think he's absolutely right about this. It's, you know, we're working on a project right now in Georgetown, Georgetown Park, which is right at the intersection of Wisconsin Avenue and M Street, right in the heart of of Georgetown. And historically was a Victorian mall, which was then converted back in 2011 to the format that it is today, which is essentially catered to the suburban, you know, big box type tenants. And over time, we've discovered that because of e-commerce and the Amazon effect, that it's just not a viable business model going forward. The physical product is outdated and the market has just kind of gotten away from us. 
And so we've been thinking about, you know, what the next chapter chapter of the asset is going to be. And we've executed a deal with Stephen Starr to, to bring a market concept to the market house, which was formerly occupied by Dean and DeLuca. That is sort of the first step to our placemaking strategy here. We're also going to be bringing a fitness concept to the project and potentially converting some of the existing retail space to multifamily, which would be the first product first product of its type in the market. And we're really excited about that. But the, I guess the underlying point here is that you know these assets will have to be reinvented. We have to look at them in a different way, spatially, financially, structurally, however we can and continue to think about what the financial profile of these buildings are if we want to continue to have success with it. It's fascinating. Georgetown Park is that what you just explained is the third iteration of the mm -hmm. project. Of course, originally it was a regional mall with anchors and, you know, had Garfinkel's and yeah. I think there was one other anchor in the, in the center, another, you know, department store basically. Yeah. And it's just, it's a whole mm -hmm. different makeup now yeah. so that's interesting and, and even before then used to be if you go back to the 1800s was a tobacco warehouse oh and, well yeah yeah, yeah turned, then turning to a warehouse for the dc streetcar and it's had so many different iterations but we, we finally want to just solve for it now yeah i mean georgetown was an industrial port when it was originally built that's of course right so the next episode that i want to address relative to this point is with wash reed and Paul McDermott. So Paul and I talked and, you know, since the end of 2022, since our interview, his company, Wash Reed, has changed names to Elm Community now. So, and this is a follow-on to what dramatic things they did in 2021, and that was to sell their entire off retail and office portfolios, which was more than 60% of their maybe 70% of their asset base at the time. So they basically liquidated two thirds of the company mm -hmm. and then, and have been now redeploying that capital into apartments, not only regionally, but, but in the Southeast down into Atlanta, Charlotte and Raleigh Durham and those markets. And they did this when Paul joined the company back in 2013 to really start thinking about, you know, reinventing what at the time was known as RIT. Then they changed it to Wash Street, and now it's Elm Community. So it's quite a transformation. So his comments were multifamily is the product type that research told them to focus on. And he said, bulk sales accelerated the momentum toward being a multifamily REIT. So they, they thought about selling them one off and they said, it's better for us just to do it in bulk, just get them done. Mm -hmm. Maybe take a little bit of a discount, but it was worth it to get the momentum and move it. And he, he praises his board for giving him the latitude to make that kind of a bold move in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to follow how the company does because they are a public real estate investment trust. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're under the scrutiny and the microscope of the public in, you know, investment market. So Clearly, they had to get some read from the from their shareholders that they could do this. And if the stock, if the board said let's go, then obviously the shareholders gave them the route. Otherwise, there would have been a hostile takeover or some kind of a proxy battle if they didn't believe in the strategy. So it's it's fascinating to see. But I guess that 
that's about as emphatic a support to what I, this trend is that I can think of, the clear trend away from traditional office and retail towards Rick's use. So what are your thoughts? From yeah, I think I felt like the underlying message here may have been that, you know, work from home is here to stay, at least in some capacity, right? And that that will forever change the demand for office space, right? And demand is never going to return to pre-pandemic levels, which may very well be the case. So acquiring an office building now feels like it's a product that has more limited upside with a lot more risk involved. And I think that's fairly consistent across at least the gateway markets, right? San Francisco, New York, D.C., Boston. But someone out there still has to own office buildings, right? And this feels like it's the industry's fight or flight moment. You either fight or, or, or you're, you know, you, you just decide to divest from all of it and just transition to into. A so what's, what's Jamestown going to do, the company <clears throat> you work for? So I, I wanted to actually get to that a little bit later in the episode. I, I want to okay. About that, but I think you know if, if you're if you're continuing to hold and look at acquisition opportunities, you have to sort of rejigger your entire strategy mm-hmm. and figure out what you think the future of an office building is going to be, and then to either develop or redevelop a product around that thesis. In this particular case, they didn't you know they didn't feel that that was the right path forward for the company, and that's perfectly fine. But I think this is just going to be a really interesting challenge for those that are still looking for these opportunities. So, so that was kind of my takeaway. It was obviously a big transition for the company. And it's interesting to sort of track and follow what they're doing. But it's it's a unique, we're, we're at a unique moment in time. You know, this hasn't happened before. So I think there's all different strategies out there. And they're all kind of interesting in their own way. <clears throat> yeah. So let me pivot again to another developer who was an interesting uh, step in to a long time existing portfolio. So, Cityline Properties, Donna Schaefer was working when before she was working where she is now, was with the West, West Group, which was one of the longest landowners in Tyson's Corner, the oldest landowners, other than Ted Lerner and the and Tyson's one shopping center. Mm-hmm. West Group was probably the longest running commercial operator in Tyson's Corner and owned over 11 million square feet of density. And mm-hmm. so when Jerry Halpin, the founder of West Group, passed away, they sold the company subsequently to DLJ and it became CityLine Properties. Donna left West Group, mm-hmm. joined them, and headed it up. And she tells that story in the, in the podcast. But she has a major job of trying to create a vision of older office buildings to in, in a park, a suburban office park, into an urban mixed-use environment in two different locations, inside and outside the beltway. Well, how's she done? Well, she's developed with the sales of land to at least half a dozen different developers, six over six million square feet of development that's either underway or currently under construction. And she still has another 5 million square feet to go in two major parcels of land that the West Group owned. But the vision, as she talks about, is how do we bring more people to live here? That's the important question they ask. And so she cited this Scotts run Stream Valley Park, Mm -hmm. which I didn't realize until she said, 
was literally the scale of Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C., which just blew me away. So then I had to go look at the map because I never even thought about Tyson's Quarter being having a park like that. Yeah. And true enough, when you look at the land there, and this is at the intersection of 123 and the Beltway, just to the east of that, that street park goes all the way to the Potomac River to the north through Great Falls. And it's a park that runs all the way up from there. And it's further south as well. So what they're going to do is develop around that and use that as a natural place for people to walk and, and enjoy the recreation there. So thinking creatively to reposition an office park into various uses of hotel, high-rise apartment, and life-planned communities, they just developed a they're underway right now with what's called the Mather, which is a life care extended, you know, seniors continual care type of arrangement. And then, of course, they are playing off of across from there, across 123, Capital One's major mixed use development with their headquarters and a huge hotel entertainment center with outs you know golf you know mini golf and everything there it's quite a spectacular so they're playing off all that and can build to that demand and and, and there's a Wegmans grocery store there so it's all there so it, looking back 20 years ago at Tyson's Corner where it's where it's come today with the with the four metro stations it's a complete transformation I mean, the vision is still, it's going to be completely even more so in another 15, 20 years when they complete the build out. So it's a fascinating evolution there. Yeah, I think it's, it's transformed quite a bit. You know, even in my career 10 years ago, it's, it's completely different from where it used to be. One of the things I find to be the paradox though of, of Tyson's as a whole is it is transitioning to a more mixed-use environment, but doesn't necessarily yet feel entirely walkable, which I know is kind of difficult to achieve. It's not as simple as it sounds, right? I think a couple months back, I had to go from the Galleria to the mall and had to cross that that intersection. Can't remember the two streets. I think it's International Drive with something else. And I think it's like a 16-lane street that you have to cross. <laughs> and there, there's only so much you can do to fix that, right? But it, but I find it to be, you know, I feel like they're trying hard to do the right thing here, and that's that's what matters. And we've toured projects like the borough, which I think is pretty well executed, and the Capital One, all the developments that are going on there, I think are really intriguing and exciting to see. One of the things I think is interesting here is, and we kind of heard this with Don Wood as well, is sort of this rise of the suburban office, right? Which I find to be really fascinating because so many people commute from places like Reston and Manassas and Annapolis and Howard County and, you know, even Frederick in some cases. And the value proposition of a suburban office building is becoming much more clear now. After spending so much time at home during the early early stages of the pandemic, we've realized all the hours that we've lost that we could have used to catch up on sleep or exercise or spend time with family, whatever it might be. And so after having built up that routine of having that time since the beginning of COVID, it's a lot harder to justify spending that extra hour going from the Beltway to the CBD yeah. just in an office, right? And so if I can commute, you know, if I'm in Frederick and I can commute to Pike and Rose versus having to go into the West End, that that changes a lot for me. So I think that I'm not suggesting the CBD is dead. 
I'm suggesting that once I get there to my office, there better be a reason for me to be there more so than just to sit at a desk and type emails. Or you live there. Right. Or you live in the CBD and not commute out. So that's, again, an affordability issue, of course. Right. But. And, and that's where I feel places like Bethesda, Pike and Rose and Rockville, Tyson's, Reston, they, they have this geographical advantage that that's true. the PPD just doesn't have now, right? Mm-hmm. So another interview that I did was a couple more with Vicki Davis and Chuck, Chuck Waters, both large mixed-use developers. Vicki is focused primarily in the district and in, in Maryland. And Chuck, of course, with Heinz is throughout the region, uh, but they're transitioning from being predominantly an office developer and operator into the mixed use environment. So those two companies came together to redevelop the parks at Walter Reed, which is a major mixed use development, the former site of the Walter Reed Hospital in Northwest Washington. Our community did tour that this fall and it's quite a fascinating project that's probably at least 10 years away from completing. But there's probably 15 buildings being built in that location, of all different uses, including entertainment uses, office, retail. There's going to be a hotel built, and they have an outdoor venue for entertainment as well as indoor. They have a theater. So it's just a it's a complete when you know grocery and the whole bit of retail. So it's it's a full a full panoply of options there. But Vicki talked a little bit about the synergies of the place and the correct mixes in the large projects as to how to, how to fit them. And she said, well, there are metrics for all that. I said, well, somewhat it's an art, isn't it, Vicki, where, you know, it depends on the, the topography, the layout, everything else, as far as what you put where, as far as a mix. But it was an interesting conversation about that. And with regard to Heinz, one thing Chuck Waters said in the interview with us is he said Heinz reinvents itself frequently and has over its 60-some-year history. So Jerry Heinz started as as an industrial developer, believe it or not. He built industrial buildings. Then he did huge office buildings and mixed-use projects in Houston. And then he decided to go nationally and internationally. And they grew organically, not by acquisition, just in by organic growth. But to do that kind of growth, they had to they had to morph to the market. And they did that. And they're doing it right now by doing land development and also mixed use development and, and residential focus, both in acquisitions and development. And of course they have their own capital markets group internally. So they mm-hmm. they had the whole gamut of, of real estate abilities as a company. But Chuck also talked about some trends that they're working on. One thing is they're one of the largest mass timber developers mm-hmm. in the country. And he said, we've adapted office space for, at the Washington Post. So we're not only for the Washington Post, but existing buildings. So office buildings are transforming themselves as well. So not just to other uses, but to adapt to users that, that come in with unique uses. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he says that office will probably never be quite the same, but it's not going to go away. There will be office demand at the high end, as he talked about the trophy, trophy office, you know, high end law firms and other things like that. They're all going to want office space. It just won't be just the volume and need 
And there will be also much more open plan, flexible space such that different users will look at it, you know, flexibly and not have to do a lot of renovation and build out as what they used to do historically. Any comments on that at all for me? Yeah, I think first off, you know, the mass timber product, if you haven't been inside of it, it's, it's incredibly cool. It remains to be seen how it performs over its life cycle, you know, when you compare it to steel and concrete. But, you know, when I was at Columbia Property Trust, we built the expansion at ADM Street. I wasn't there for the construction side of things, but did work on the design side and got to see some Preston projects as well. And then at Jamestown here, we're building one at Pond City Market down in Atlanta, which we're really excited about. But I just think it's a cool product and it's a different way of looking at, you know, what the work environment can be. And so if you haven't had the chance to check one out, you know, be happy to show you ADM Street if you're interested. But I think in in the conversation as a whole, it to me it feels like <clears throat> the projects that seem to be having success are are the master plan communities where you're really building at scale and not just looking at individual buildings, you know, one at a time. We've toured some of these projects this year with the the iconic journey group. We toured Reston Town Center, we toured the borough, Walter Reed, and I, you know, we've all been around Pike and Rose. City Ridge, I think, is another one that's coming up. I'm really mm-hmm. excited to check that out. St. Elizabeth's. These projects, you know, actually allow for you to create a streetscape that is consistent, an architecture that speaks the same language, amenities that are used by all the different occupants that are shared among the different parcels. And then as we, as you just mentioned, potentially enough scale to even bring a grocery store to the project. It's the combination of these items that allow for communities to feel like they really have ownership in the success of the project. And that I think is a really strong feeling to have when you live there and you feel like you're actually responsible for the success of the project. And you really take pride in its stewardship. That's something I learned at Jire Lynch as well, is, is being stewards of the assets and of our projects. And I just feel like that type of psychology is just so strong when you look at these master plan communities. Agreed. So our next guest was or talking was with Moina Banerjee of JBG Smith, who is the CFO, but obviously understands the whole mission and what they're doing there. And she talked a lot about, you know, the transition of the company, JBG companies into the merge to merge JBG Smith. And she also talked about the Amazon deal and how it was transfer, transpired. But what I wanted to focus on on this point was that they have transitioned their portfolio and they were before the merger, the spin, as she calls it, they were 70% office. This was, was the company's focus. And that's really the, the roots of JBG was, was the office market. And they're looking, they're striving, and they're quite there, but almost at 50% residential now. So they've sold several office assets in the district. They still have a large property management presence, third party that they manage, but they're trying to you know reduce their exposure to office. And for Amazon, all the office they're developing in National Landing is on a fee basis because Amazon is basically taking down the land in increments and then JBG is building the office for them as a fee, as a fee developer and they will own the real estate. So that's the, the thesis for them going forward. And they're obviously redeploying that into multifamily assets. So similar to what Elm Communities and Paul McDermott's theme is, they're now going to become predominantly a multifamily read in, in the long run. But 
more mixed use and probably more integrated, you know, urban than what Elm. Elm is going to be more suburban, you know, not as much mixed use, but more focused on residential only. Yeah. Thoughts yeah. there? Yeah, I can imagine that they'll always retain some attachment to their roots, which is oh, yes. obvious. Diversification is obviously the strategy here. And I, I like the fact that they're still holding some office. I think that's important for our region and for our market to send that message. Obviously, there's a lot of incredibly smart people in that building. You know, they know what they're doing. But I think, you know, they're going to continue to build and own quality product just like they always have. So th this is another situation where it's, it's obviously a pandemic era reaction to what's going on in the market and will be another interesting storyline to follow. Exactly. So then the episode I want to talk about with regard to this theme is with Anthony Lanier, which was most recent. And I know he's a partner of your company, uh, Ramiz. So you have a lot mm -hmm. of familiarity with Anthony's philosophy and what he thinks, but being a European, he thinks long on most of his projects. He likes to think of things as sustainable for the long haul. But obviously, when the pandemic hit, he never expected what was going to happen. And a lot of the vacancy occurred on Georgetown. So he had to pivot and be much more flexible on leasing and adaptable reuse and cutting deals with tenants and making it such that he could get occupants. And he said... They leased over half a million square feet, both in Washington and New York and their partnerships during the pandemic of office and retail, which is a pretty impressive statistic, I thought. But it's adaptability and being able to work. He did make a comment that he thinks that urban centers will suffer the most going forward on, as a result of all these things, of the pandemic and that. But he believes long term, and that's kind of his thought process that there will be demand for both office and retail long-term in the right locations if done well. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, when I think about, you know, in my study of Georgetown, I tend to compare it to other retail corridors like 14th Street, as an example, 8th Street's another great example. And a lot of the leasing activity that we've been researching is concentrated in those three corridors. The CBD East End and West End, to some extent, have not reacted the same. So I do agree that it feels like these sort of inner city submarkets and neighborhoods have taken it on the chin the most when it comes to leasing activity and even rental rates. One of the interesting trends I think that is sort of consistent with this is during the last couple of years, we've noticed a significant rise in direct-to-consumer brands that previously were e-commerce only. But now they have recognized the value of having a physical footprint where people can actually go and touch and feel the product and actually understand what it is before making a purchase. There's a long and growing list of these, these retail concepts that have now realized the value of that physical footprint. And Georgetown seems to be consistently, you know, the, the target submarket for that type of opening. The bid keeps track of this as well. There, there's a list of all these sort of first in market locations that have decided to call Georgetown their home. And, you know, obviously we compete with 8th Street, we compete with 14th Street. Those are both great neighborhoods. We, we've got assets at 14th and U or 13th and U rather. So we know that submarket pretty well. And then of course, when I was back at Jair, I used to work on the 8th Street corridor. So I know that area pretty well as well. But I think that these types of mixed use environments where you've got 
you've got residential, you've got office, and then you've got some retail and importantly, diversified retail, I think is going to be a key ingredient of success going forward. And at this time, I don't necessarily see the CBD as having that, you know, whether that's an entertainment concept, whether that's, you know, apparel retail, whether that's a movie theater, you know, the, the retail world is so much more vast than we think of it. And I think the CBD just hasn't yet adapted to that requirement. Well, Anthony's tried. He's just a squatch court and he's probably done more residential development in, in the CBD than just about any other developer that I can think of. So yeah. he's he's making an effort there, but they were all de novo ground up deals. They weren't adaptive mixed use, re, you know, re, adaptive reuse deals. Mm-hmm. There are some of those underway now. So the jury will be out on that. Yeah. You know, the, the Glow Enterprises is doing one as well as Folger Pratt. So there'll be some interesting evolutions as we see the transition going forward. My guess is that some of those are incentivized by the city because of the mm-hmm. affordable housing mandates that they have. But my also guess that some of them are not. They're just basically forced for some of the users. Like I think Wilco was one of them where mm-hmm. the existing owner decided, okay, we're just going to convert it because we can't lease it from an office standpoint, we're going to convert it and we won't necessarily take incentives to do it. We'll just do it on our own mm-hmm. because we have the wherewithal to do it. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see how all those play out. So the next main theme is what I call the emphasis on community, quote unquote, as the important drivers for development and activation of real estate. And the, the underlying theme of that is the affordable housing thrust. And I have two, well, actually three, four podcast guests, I'm sorry, that are on the on this theme. The first is Adrian Washington, a neighborhood development company. Adrian said in his overall theme is affordable projects now looking beyond the site to neighborhood enhancement. So Adrian's lens now, and it, cha- it changed when, when he was the head of the Anacostia Waterfront Commission prior to the wharf being developed, and that whole area on the Anacostia River being repositioned. He understood the power of community that he learned from the planning, the Department of Planning and Anthony Alt or Andrew Altman, who had that philosophy and, and others. And so he took that philosophy and reinvented it back in his company. And so now he looks at things in a neighborhood improvement type of approach. And so he's done that in the Benning Road area. In Northeast. He grew up in Anacostia himself. He's a native of there. He went to Harvard Business School. So he's he's a pretty sharp guy. And he was he's actually one of the oldest African-American developers in the city. So he's kind of been a, a mentor to a lot of younger developers who've kind of looked up to him over time. But he has this emphasis on community and it's important. And so then two others that talked about that are Bua Beniti, who a Nigerian native and came to this country and he learned affordable housing through just, he worked with Adrian and then he went on on his own and worked with the district government very closely and is one of the lead developers and also is on the district's affordable housing board. So he kind of understood the district process and, and was able to find sites to be able to do his redevelopment aspects. So what are your thoughts on this whole community idea from East? 
Yeah, so I worked with Jair Lynch from mid-2019 to mid-2021, so about a two-year span. And, you know, since then, the company has amassed a much larger portfolio of both affordable housing as well as attainable housing, um, which is essentially naturally occurring affordable housing. And they've done this throughout the region, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. And they've done this by building these sort of larger institutional portfolio relationships with Naveen's Impact Fund, as well as the Amazon Affordable Housing Trust Fund. This has allowed for them to amass a much larger portfolio and really get some scale. And, you know, in my experience working with them, you know, they are a company that really cares about the community. And their approach to these types of projects was to think about the community at large not just, you know, the one block radius or not just, you know, your your immediate neighbors, even looking beyond the ANC boundaries. And so they, you know, in, in thinking about this, you know, they had a relationship with the Department of Parks and Recreation back in the 2000s. And they oversaw, I think it was a $200 million capital improvement program where they worked on recreation centers throughout the city on behalf of DPR and trying to figure out what it is that the community wants and what do we need to deliver. And so it's not affordable housing, but I think it really speaks to the type of company they are and the relationship that they've built with communities. And I think over the long run, it has really come to their benefit. And they've had tremendous success in not only building those relationships, but then utilizing that to build great communities. So I had a fantastic experience working with them. And they they continue to sort of push on this idea that community relationships are one of the most important fundamentals of real estate development, which we've heard time and time again throughout these these episodes. So on that theme, I interviewed Deputy Mayor of the District of Columbia, John Felciccio, and obviously he has some major challenges ahead of him with regard to economic development in the city because of the pandemic. And I said, so how do you get people to come back downtown, John? He said, well, we want to create a, a, you know, an environment that, that people want to be in. Mm-hmm. So entertainment, we're going to put investments into the city. We are obviously going to create some incentives for developers to bring people in, not only to work, but to live and play and entertain. So incentives for people to develop. The primary incentives, obviously, are for affordable housing, but you're not going to build necessarily affordable housing in the central business district. You're going to build housing that partially will be employed for affordable, but you want housing such that people will use the office space that's there as well. And so you have a good synergistic office environment, office, retail, and residential environment. So he said, we are working on trying to enliven the downtown area as the best we can. Vicki Davis in her podcast talked about half a million dollars money raised for reinvesting in the city that the Mm -hmm. city has done. She she was very clear that the city has done more than its uh, other jurisdictions surrounding it. Mm -hmm. Maryland and Virginia has on a per capita basis, which I thought was interesting. And then we then I also interviewed Chuck. Bean, who is the, the outgoing head of the Council of Governments, the COG. And Chuck talks about bringing people back to walkable environments and engaged workplaces, community orientation. And obviously, he was instrumental in getting the metro funding situation worked out. 
among all the jurisdictions. That was a major one of his thrusts over the last six or seven years when Metro was struggling to try to get its act together. And they have now a new head, Metro does. So, and this fellow apparently is from Boston and has a good vision for what they want to do for the future. And Chuck was instrumental in helping with that. So Chuck has been kind of trying to hold everything together and bringing people back to, to what what really is important to, among the jurisdictions in the region. Any thoughts on government involvement from these? Yeah, I think the government recognizes that they have a pretty big challenge here, which is that, you know, we all know that the assessed value of office buildings has really taken a hit as a result of all the vacancy that's out there. I think we're at 20% or somewhere around that number. And that obviously impacts the city's bottom line when it comes time for, for property taxes. So I know that there's there's folks in the government that are working really hard to figure out the right um, you know, economic development initiatives to sort of correct or at least alleviate to some extent this issue. I think, you know, I'm really fascinated by the the pipeline of conversion projects we have in the city um, because I know that not every building is really I guess you could call it eligible for these types of conversions. It's got to make financial sense and it's got to make, you know, the, the buildings have to have the right, you know, the right proportions and the right depth and the right, you know, all the right bones, if you will. Um, so I think that those opportunities are going to be really interesting to see how developers respond to it and how they actually execute. You know, you've, you've probably read the headline on the Post Brothers and what they're thinking about doing up in Adams Morgan. Yeah. Uh, with the Universal North, that that's a that's a huge project. But yeah, the, these initiatives. I mean, in a lot of cases, the projects don't pencil without you know without tax credits or some other type of financial structure. So you know, it will be interesting to see what they come up with and, and how they solve for it. Agreed. So we'll move on to the third point, and that's innovation in all construction and building activities, and that includes energy conservation reclamation, building materials, the techniques of construction, how, the, how it's executed. So we had basically three guests that were focused on uh, all these issues. Yolanda Cole, who's the principal of, of Hickok Cole, one of the leading architectural firms in the city. And also Roger Frechette, who leads Interface Engineering, which is a mechanical, electrical, plumbing engineer, designer. And Roger is world-renowned for super tall building activities that he's done when he was with Skidmore Owings and Merrill, including the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. He, he was the engineer for that building. Um, so, but our focus with Roger was on, you know, new, new technologies and also his American Geophysical Union building here in Washington, which is a net zero energy building. It is somewhat of a science experiment because it's not really, it was built primarily just as an experiment because it economically wouldn't work as a new building. No one would pay enough rent to cover the costs of what they did there. But the technologies are cutting edge and they're also an opportunity to learn on maybe implementing some of them into other buildings going forward. And then Yolanda is. As we talked earlier about mass timber, she's been designing those kinds of things and has been very innovative at their firm at Hickok Cole with new innovative structures and, and design techniques. Any thoughts on that, Ramiz? 
what I found most fascinating, I think two things in particular that really stood out to me, you know, one was the conversation with Roger Frechette. Excuse me. One was a conversation with Roger Frechette on how buildings can be built to mimic biology, which I guess we call biomimicry, and how we can design building systems to really incorporate that that same strategy, which I know it feels futuristic, but it is being done right now at, at different scales and in different countries and in different ways. And I thought that whole conversation and some of the links that were sent along with that podcast were just really fascinating to watch those videos and read what's going on in that space. Uh, and then the other was the, the conversation that you had with Jim Davis on all the different you know, new materials and, and the new technology and new construction methods that are out there. Over the past few years, we've read about you know, 3D printed homes, the use of drone footage to verify things in, in the construction field, you know, all, all sorts of you know, different types of concrete or different types of drywall, different types of rebar. You know, all these different things that are coming out. And I just think, you know, construction is such a difficult industry to innovate that anyone who can manage to do it, it's just such an incredible feat. I saw a video recently where <clears throat> on a job site, they had used a QR code. And by scanning that QR code, contractors knew exactly where the project timeline was, what they were supposed to do that day. Mm-hmm. It had an RFI log, a punch list, all the information was on that QR code which was automatically updated by the GC every single day. And so that saves you from meetings, from misunderstandings, from lawsuits. And I just think that the future in this space is just fascinating. He talked about carbon cure too, which was an interesting methodology for, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, manufacturing. And basalt rebar, which I don't really know what the, engineering benefits of that are, but maybe it's just a supply issue or whatever. But that was another point he made. But, you know, Jim was really excited about some of these technologies and uh, probably more excited about his people and his teams and getting his projects done. And one interesting story that Jim cited was having to reskin a project that they already built because mm-hmm. there was a problem with the, with the mortar. It, it leaked and had problems. So they took the entire, all the whole skin off while under construction and reskinned the whole building just to make sure it was done right. So it yeah. was quite an interesting story. Yeah. Well, one thing before we jump, I wanted to share a quote here that I found to be really interesting. And I'm, I'm purposefully modifying this for brevity and clarity, but I think it still gets the point across. It's a quote about why it's hard to innovate in construction. And the the quote is, and again, this is modified, it's construction has the unfortunate combination of building mostly unique things on different sites with different weather conditions with different site crews. And it consists of tasks that are difficult to undo and are highly sequential. A building cannot be beta tested to work the bugs out. And it is built by large heavy things that present a life safety risk. Buildings are also heavily regulated and this means that any process failure can potentially derail your entire project. So that, that, that's the quote. And my reaction to it is I'm more impressed by construction innovation now than I was before reading that. Because you don't tend to process what construction is until you look at it from all those different dimensions. Right? There's very few things out there in the world that are like building a building. I look at it, You bring in biological issues 
Mm-hmm. Think about what a doctor thinks about when he's operating on a human being, yeah. the complexities of that. So the human body mm-hmm. may not be, may be more complex than a development project because there are even more systems in a human body. But that's one thing that Roger Frechette talked about is he said that my, I was trying to dissect the different engineering types. And he said, you know, if you're, if you're building, if you're a, a builder or if you're an engineer, a civil engineer, you're basically building the skeleton of the building. That's the important thing for you is the skeleton, the structure, the foundation of the building. He said, I'm building all the fluid systems, the systems that move in the body. And that's mm-hmm. so the electrical, <laughs> the plumbing, the, you know, all those, those, those are the fluids of the, of the building in essence, right? The moving. So he, he compared a building to the human body in that regard, which I thought was fascinating actually. Yeah. But the complexities yeah. are, are analogous to some extent. So the next point is the importance of bringing people together for training, collaboration and innovation. So the hybrid is becoming less acceptable, obviously, to a lot of people. And they want people want presence. They want to be in person with people. So three of our guests, Ron Gard of Seifarth Law Firm, Kyle Shopman of CBRE, brokerage firm, and Adam Ducker of RC Elko all emphasized that post-pandemic, that they realize that remote work has its place, but will not be effective going forward for team building and collaboration. And they say that the purpose of, you know, my question to that is, what is the purpose of real estate? You know, it's to bring people together, I think. And there's a purpose to go to the office, I think. So, and I asked each of the, each one of them that question. And they said, yeah, you got to get people there. You can't train, you can't collaborate. It's not easy to do. A lot of nonverbal communication happens when you're in person with people. It's hard to do it over Zoom. So what's your reaction to that? Yeah, and, and that's that's exactly my thoughts. You know, I, I think the main reason why people come to the office is to collaborate, but we've heard that word so many times over the past year or two, but what exactly does it mean to collaborate, right? Um, what makes collaboration in an office so much different, I think, is is access to people, right? It's access to having conversations that may not otherwise happen if you weren't in the office because you're right there, right next to someone. And I think that in person, the ideas are generally better because people are not distracted by whatever they're watching on the other monitor. I I think people are more candid in person and people are more likely to speak up when they're in person because they feel like they have to, right? It's a a lot easier to contribute and learn and get ideas across. And so there's a whole different psychology to how people work in person versus over Zoom, and you can't consistently get the same quality over Zoom. So that's what I feel like is the main difference. And so when I think about collaboration, I think about the quantity of ideas, the quality of ideas, the amount of conversation that actually happens. It's just a night and day difference between you know working from home and being in the office. And what about how developers build to attract people to come in? And what what about that point? Yeah, I mean, there's there's all sorts of prop tech that is out there right now that is trying to get to this day. And we at Jamestown, we've got an incredible, we call them the tech and innovation team. 
and they're responsible for going out and sourcing all this new technology and trying to figure out what it is that will bring people back to the office. And then we have to figure out, you know, what are we interested in piloting at which assets, you know, asking ourselves all these questions, you know, going through pitch decks, reviewing companies, doing interviews, setting up contracts. So we've been through this process so many times with different vendors. And we're trying to bring the best experience we can to not only the building and the building amenities, but also to individual tenants and employees. So that, I think, is also another fascinating space because it's it's ultimately going to determine which landlords are actually interested in leasing office space. And that's something that we're just incredibly focused on right now. Okay, so the final point is what I call, actually, there's only five points total. That was wrong. It's five. It's adaptability to the changing capital markets conditions with obviously the rise in interest rates and inflation and then and then which increases volatility and uncertainty about valuation of some property and bets on new projects, obviously. So, what, you know, what does it make sense to build and why and what, what are the odds to, to success? And so I have two podcasts guests that are kind of focused on these issues. And that's uh, Brian McDonald of PGIM, who heads worldwide debt for them, debt investing. And he said, "Let's we have to become more nimble as an investor and anticipate market volatility and adapt to it. So have a, the flexibility of different programs to meet with the needs of the marketplace and be efficient when we need to do something a little bit unusual to work things out. Brian's career was through, he, he grew the most when he was doing the workouts back in a global financial crisis. So he, he understood well, those issues that come up and he's more or less anticipating that to be needed over the next year or two as the cap, the increase in interest rates has created a, a bit of a crisis, mm-hmm. particularly in the office sector where the demand isn't there to offset you know, the increased costs. So you don't have the, the rental income. So you're going to have a lot of properties going upside down if they, if they haven't already and will be over the next two to three years as leases come due and tenants are not renewing and all kinds of things are happening. And then the other guest that I had was Alex Johns, who's with Grosvenor, and she invests in equities and opportunities. And we talk about the, the markets. They're all, all in and mixed use. And the fact, they are a partner in Walter Reed with Hines and Urban Atlantic. And they're also investing in metro location residential projects. They have two going at the Grosvenor Metro Station here in Montgomery County. But in office, they're not looking at new investments, but certainly they're willing to hold on to their existing ones because they build, they invest in absolute, the highest quality properties anywhere in the you know in the region that they're in yeah. and of course that has that goes back to their heritage in England being the developers of Mayfair and Hyde Park and the whole area around it back in the 17th century it was a 300 plus year old company so it's a, obviously a long mindset but she says underhand understand how to measure and understand risk and that's obviously an important thing. And every every investor's done that. But I think you have to be more flexible now than maybe you've ever been. Yeah. So your thoughts? 
Yeah, so it just comes back to what I had brought up before about sort of the, the Jamestown, you know, general outlook on, on office space. We were having a conversation internally about, you know, market dislocation and what that even means and where the distressed opportunities are in the office sector right now. <clears throat> what makes this economic downturn or pending economic downturn so different from the dot-com bust or the SNL crisis or even the Great Recession is that... <clears throat> the new normal coming out of this doesn't feel like what the new normal was in the past. And that's driven by just a complete change in the demand for office space as a result of work from home policies. Right. And this is a complete structural change from status quo. And it's a period of time that we've never really experienced before. So it's, it's kind of the first time that the market's really reacting to it. So this kind of changes the entire demand picture and, this, the distressed opportunities that are out there, we can't look at them the same way that we used to look at them because it's just so different from what we saw coming out of 2009 as an example. Mm -hmm. So this goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, every building has ingredients for success. And if we're going to proceed with an acquisition opportunity, it's got to have more of those ingredients than, than something we may have been interested in in the past, if, if that makes sense to you. I think it's it, there's a checklist and we've got to be able to feel compelled by an opportunity by having more of those boxes checked than we may have had in the past. Thank you for that perspective, Ramiz, and, and your perspectives on all these points. And thank you, listeners, for listening to this review of our 2022 episodes. I think I touched on everyone except maybe Mr. Bob Youngentob. And I'll just say with Bob that he's more or less stepped down from leading his company on a day-to-day -day basis, but was a leader in the, in the for sale housing sector. And obviously saw, you know, really good, strong diversification this last year into the multifamily sector. So he's moving more and more into the mixed use environment as well, uh, even though he stays in the residential realm. But again, thank you for listening and to give some perspective to this past year. And we've got some interesting challenges ahead of us in 2023. I've got a, a slate of guests coming. I'm not going to give you a preview right now, but we have some good, some really good li listens coming up in the months of May, March and April. So stay tuned. The next one should be coming out in about a week to two weeks. So thank you for listening and have a good, good day. Take care. <laughs>